Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What I think makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. For today's episode, I'm talking about Florian Hinkle von Donnersmark's 2006 film, The Lives of Others. It won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. I'm talking about this film because it's one that I saw after my father passed away in 2006, and it left a big impression on me, and it's a film that has sort of haunted me for 12 years now. And this episode is about grief. I talk about how I've struggled to deal with my father's death, but I also talk about how cinema has been a really important thing in my life, how it's helped me cope and it's helped me survive and go on living after so much loss that I have um, gone through. The film and, and this episode is also about the film itself and about some of its most important themes that include surveillance and how people react when they are living under a repressive government the way the characters are in the lives of others. So I talk about a lot. I put a lot of heart and soul into this episode. I hope that you'll listen to it, and I hope that you'll find something valuable in it. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and also access rewards and extras. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. I'd like to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you so much. This podcast is listener supported and I want to keep it that way. So I thank all of you for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. If financial support is not an option for you, and I totally understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes. It helps people discover Her Head in Films, which I'd really love because I love sharing my passion with those of you who listen. Consider telling your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or you can just engage with me on social media. I'm on Facebook at Her Head in Films. I'm on Instagram at Her Head in Films. And all my social media is in the, the show notes of each episode. So engage with me on social media. I always enjoy that. Before I get into my full analysis of the lives of others, first I wanted to talk a bit about why I'm doing this episode, the reason behind it, because it's very personal. I'm recording this episode in May of 2018. And I wanted to talk about The Lives of Others because this is a film that I watched in 2006 after my father died. And he died in May of 2006. 
and it was a really difficult experience. It was painful. It was devastating. I urge you to listen to episode 61 of this podcast about Guillermo del Toro's film Pan's Labyrinth because in that episode I go in depth about why I turned to cinema and I talk about a movie theater that my mom and I went to after my father died. It was a discount theater and it only cost about one dollar. Sometimes it was more. I think later on like a few years later it went up a little bit and at that theater we watched so many different movies from Pan's Labyrinth to the lives of others to just different stuff and in episode 61 on Pan's Labyrinth I talk about what that theater meant to me why it was important in my life and I also have an interview with my mom where we talk about our experience of being there in the theater watching the different films um we laugh a lot in that interview and it was really fun to do and I don't want to rehash all of that because I've already talked about it but I do want to just reinforce in this episode how cinema was really crucial and essential to me after my father died. I was 16 years old when he passed away and I was devastated and it was something that really destroyed me. In episode 61 I also talked about my struggle with depression and anxiety and agoraphobia. Things got really dark and really bad for me after my father died and even 12 years later I still struggle with his death. It's not something that goes away. It's May right now and I've been crying all day. I've really been struggling to get through the day because I just, when May comes, I basically just want to be tranquilized. Um, I cannot cope with the memories of his death, the memories of what happened to him and it's been so hard to live without him and this is the 12th anniversary and I was 16 when he died and so I'm very aware that there may come a day when I've lived longer without him than I lived with him and my father was my best friend he was a big support in my life and he loved me unconditionally and he gave me love and affection and I haven't had that a lot in my life. I struggle to connect with people. I'm a very lonely person. I'm very on my own. I have my mom and she's really my main support in life. And she helps me get through. And I don't know what I would have done without her. But grief takes a toll on you. Depression and anxiety take a toll on you. And I also talk about in episode 61 how I didn't have a lot of money and I, I wasn't able to see a therapist until I was in college and I did see a grief counselor but by then it had been six years so at the time when the trauma happened of his death I had nobody my family wasn't there they basically abandoned me and my mom both my dad's family and my mom's family really were not there for us they did not help us um, we were really on our own going through something so traumatic and catastrophic and it's just it's may is just filled with so much for me it, when he died everything changed nothing could ever be the same again it brought death into my life it brought ugliness 
I, I thought my family would be there for me. I thought people would care about me. You like to think if something bad happens to you, that people will care, that people will want to be there. And so I learned not to trust people. I learned that that's not going to happen. I learned sad things about the world. I had to confront these realities at an early age that people are not going to be there for you. They're not going to support you. You don't have anyone to rely on but yourself. That's a sad thing to learn at the age of 16. I learned that I was on my own, really, and that I had to save myself. And that's what I've tried to do for the last 12 years, even as I've been drowning and struggling with mental illness and with isolation and loneliness and loss. I have tried to save myself through films and cinema. And the year after my father died, my grandmother died. So in 2006, my dad died. 2007, my grandmother died. 2009, my uncle died. So I wasn't even 20 years old. I was 19. And by that age, three people in my life had died. And it was even worse for my mom. Because that was her husband, her mother, and her brother. So, like, several of her family is just wiped out within three years. Neither one of us have ever recovered from it. It has taken such a toll. And it's been so devastating on our bodies and our minds. And we've really turned to each other and we're very close. But every person has to go through grief alone to some extent. Nobody else can be inside your mind. And so art was really what helped me. Writing helped me. Films helped me. Literature helped me. That was what I turned to. To help me cope and to survive. But it's not everything. I still struggle. It's not a cure. It doesn't take all the pain away. You can only do so much. Um, and some people are resilient and some people can get through it and they can be fine and they can be triumphant. And I'm not that kind of person. I'm still a mess. I'm still crying. And I mean, it's been 12 years. And I think some people would think, oh, you should move on. Oh, you should be over it or you should let it go. And I think that's easy to say when it's not your father. When it's not a person that you loved more than anything in the world. Someone who loved and supported you and, and meant everything to you. I guess it's pretty easy to say that when you're on the outside. But when it's your loved one. When it's someone who is beloved by you. It's very different. And it's easy to say that. But it's not easy to live it and to wake up with it every day. And so I have had to find a way to keep going. And so cinema has become that for me. It's been there for me through a lot of loss and a lot of pain and a lot of struggle. And um, that's what I've been trying to share on this podcast is is that passion for it and, and that connection that I feel to it. Um, and so when May came around this year, I thought the best way to deal with with anniversary of my father's death was to talk about films and was to talk about the movies that helped me after he died when I went to that theater um, and I was really lucky the films that that theater showed that even though it was a discount theater 
they showed some foreign films and they showed some really good films at times whereas where i live now um it's all blockbusters it's all superhero films so it's very different where i live now and that theater that i went to back in 2006 12 years ago is no longer a discount theater it has transitioned into showing new releases so it's very different than the way it was 12 years ago so much has changed in the 12 years since i went to that movie theater at that time i was watching dvds and watching things off television streaming wasn't really part of my life then uh, social media and the internet was not part of my life back then in 2006 2007 the world was very different um, it's it's changed so much and so that's what this episode is about I love the lives of others it's it's a film that I I enjoy and that I think is a really good film but um it's it is always going to be inflected by the moment at which I saw it that will always define that film for me I can't really be objective about films that's why I don't call myself a critic I call myself more of like a guide where I'm trying to guide you to different films I'm not trying to be a critic I'm not trying to be objective about films because that's not possible for me often a film is um it's defined by the moment at which I watch it and what's going on in my life and what am I feeling. And so these films from 2006, 2007, those years after my father died, I have very intense memories of them. And at that time when I saw them, they had such an intense impact on me that it's hard to put into words. But it, it was so intense to watch these films. And, and when I go back and think about those memories, they're, they're very powerful for me. And I think the main way that I want to try to deal with my grief right now is to talk about some of these movies. I talked about Pan's Labyrinth, and now I'm talking about the lives of others. And I don't always talk about more mainstream and well-known films on the podcast. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I like the more obscure stuff. But I want you to know that I like it. I like a lot of different films. And even though this podcast, I like to say it's about art house cinema. It's, it's about what I would call world cinema. Films from all around the world. While it is grounded in that, there are all kinds of films that I love and that I, ha I have affection for and love for. And sometimes they're more mainstream. I would call The Lives of Others in Pan's Labyrinth a bit more mainstream than what I usually talk about. But that's okay. I want to talk about everything on this podcast. But I do want you to know that, that this film in particular is very personal for me and that I'm talking about it because of that personal connection and that connection to my father's death and to this theater from when I was a teenager and being with my mom and us watching films and us finding comfort and solace and salvation in movies me more so than her if you go back and listen to episode 61 about Pan's Labyrinth in the interview with my mom for her it was she said it was a comfort but it was like an escape for her you know to go and eat popcorn and watch a film for me it was a bit different I think it was a bit more intense and these films have continued to 
haunt me and to stay with me and I would say perhaps my cinephilia kind of started there not fully um, I didn't know much about European or art house cinema at that time but it there was I think a seed planted there in those movie theaters after my father died and I can still see myself sitting in that theater in that dark um, room and these films being projected on the screen and I feel like we are losing that as we go more digital and we, I don't know, it's like, it's hard because I could argue both sides of it, that I live in a rural area in the South in a small town where the only movie theater near me shows blockbusters. So I'm completely dependent on streaming. If I want to see art house cinema, if I want to see European cinema or things from Africa or things from Asia, I'm going to have to stream it. I'm going to have to. But at the same time, I have such intense memories of, of movie theaters. And I wish I could have that again. If they were playing Christoph Kishlovsky down the street at my local theater, I'd be there in a heartbeat. No matter what it cost, I'd find it. I'd find the money somehow if I could. And I would absolutely watch Christoph Kishlovsky or Ingmar Bergman or Agnes Varda in an actual movie theater. I would absolutely do that and have that experience because that experience did mean something to me. And there is a difference between seeing Pan's Labyrinth on a movie screen to seeing it on my laptop screen. There is a difference there. And the experience that is going to stay with me more is not when I rewatched it on my computer screen, but when I watched it in 2006, when I was grieving and when I was depressed and when I was scared and I felt a sense of home and a sense of safety within that movie theater. It was almost like this little bright cocoon, right? And I got to see these films and that experience meant so much to me and I've never had it again. It's been a decade since I've had an experience like that where I got to see a foreign film or an art house film or something like that in a movie theater. It is so rare for me. And I do worry that as streaming takes hold, and I, I fully admit to loving streaming. I'm not against it. I'm not criticizing it. I, de I depend on it, right? You know, I, I have to have it or I wouldn't be able to see these films. But I do wish there was something more being done to try to bring films like that into communities like where I live in the rural south. I'm sure there is an art house theater where I live in the state where I live. I think I looked into it once, but it's very far away. It's miles and miles away, tens of miles away. It's not possible for me to go to that theater. So it's not like they don't exist, but it's just very rare. And I, I do feel like we're missing something. And I do get nostalgic about Blockbuster and I do get nostalgic about DVDs. I recently was going through my closet. I went through a big move in 2015. I lost my house and I had to move. I moved to another state. I moved to two other states actually in the last three years. It's been really difficult. It's been really hard. I wasn't sure if I had grabbed my DVDs and I found them. I was going through my closet in my apartment and I found them. 
I wanted to hug them. Like I wanted to cry when I found these DVDs. They were DVDs that I had collected throughout my teenage years, I would say. And I used to go to different places like Blockbuster or different DVD stores or movie stores. Um, And I would buy these films. And I found The Lives of Others. I found Pan's Labyrinth. I found La Vie en Rose. I found The Hours. Um, I I just found all kinds of DVDs from, from my childhood in my teenage years and it has sparked something in me that has gotten me more interested in DVDs again. I don't do Blu-ray. I have just sort of a basic laptop so I wouldn't have any way of playing Blu-ray but I love DVDs again and I I started um, I want to try to do Netflix's DVD service. I'm trying it out. You get a one month free trial so I'm trying it right now and I already got two films in the mail And it was so exciting to like go to the mailbox and to know that I would have these DVDs in them and something about it, like I'm just going through this stage, I don't know how long it will last, where I'm getting more interested in the physical thing again, the DVD. And I've had streaming for so long. I've been using Hulu and Netflix and Filmstruck and Mubi and I am serious about my film watching. I have a lot of services that I I try to use. Um when I can, when I can afford them. And so I'm serious about my films. Um, But I didn't realize how much I missed the DVD, that there is a difference. It feels like more of a treat. It feels like more of an experience. Like I have these two DVDs on my bedside and I can't wait to watch them. And I've been going through my other DVDs that I discovered in my closet. And many of these have extra features that you can't find. The Lives of Others DVD that I own, that I got over a decade ago, has all kinds of special features on it. And maybe you could find them on YouTube, I don't know, but there's a different experience. It has deleted scenes, it um, it has director's commentary, it has interviews... So I I loved that about DVDs. I remember I used to buy DVDs for the special features. Like I would, um, I would see that the DVD had special features and that was really important to me. And I remember that I would watch the different films with the director's commentary because that always interested me, like what directors had to say and what they thought. And I always loved getting behind the scenes featurettes and, and seeing what things were like on the set and interviews with the actors and I love stuff like that some people don't some some people do not care they don't care about special features I personally do I think it enriches your understanding of a film now from what I've read the DVDs that Netflix sends out do not have special features maybe some of them do but most of them it's just the film and um, you know that's okay if I if I want a particular DVD that has special features, maybe I'll try to get it or save up. There are there are at least three that I really want to get as a physical DVD. Now I'm not going to all of a sudden start buying DVDs again. I can't afford it. It's it, it these things are not cheap. You know these can be twenty twenty dollars or more. But I really want the Passion of Joan of Arc. I want the Double Life of Veronique. And I want the Tree of Life. Criterion Collection is a, is going to release a new version of the Tree of Life. Um, 
in August of 2018. It's going to be, it's going to feature like 50 extra minutes that were not included in the original version of the film. So I got my eye on that, but it's like really expensive. But those are the three that maybe in the coming months, if it's financially possible for myself, I would really like to have those DVDs and have something tangible and something physical. It means something to me to have that. I think it's maybe it's a product of having lost so much when I went through that move in 2015. I had to leave most of my possessions behind. I would say 99% or 95% of my stuff, clothes and books and, and so many things that I had accumulated over 26 years of my life up to that point. And it was hard and it was painful. And so maybe these physical objects, they have more they have more meaning for me and more power for me. And those DVDs that I found, those meant a lot to me. It's like a connection to my childhood. It's a connection to my life back then. Because I remember buying these DVDs and I remember watching them. And I have a lot of memories of that. And, and they mean a lot to me. And so... You know, films have just become so important to me in so many ways. And I really think that it started in that theater after my father died that something something was dead. Something had been destroyed, obviously, but something was maybe taking its place. Something was starting to grow again in those ruins that were created by his death the ruins of me, you know, just the, the shambles of my life that maybe like a little blade of grass was coming up through the concrete or through the, the completely desolate soil or whatever. And what had been destroyed and something was growing again and something was trying to live again. And maybe that was my way of trying to live again after he died was to go to these films and to surrender to them and to lose myself in them and to connect with them. Because I think that's what keeps us alive is connection. And sometimes you can't find it in your everyday life. Sometimes you have to find it through art and you find it through music. You find it through films. You find it through literature, that, that spark of connection. And that can really keep you alive. And I, I know that it has for me. But for May, I wanted to I wanted to revisit these films and I wanted to think about them again and talk about them and explore them. And and I felt like that would be a healing and productive way of dealing with this grief, of dealing with the fact that it's 12 years and he's not here. And how do you live with that and how do you cope with that? And I don't have any answers in episode 61 about Pan's Labyrinth, I reach out to those of you who might be grieving. And I talk about things that helped me, like literature. But I also mention if you have the means or if you have the opportunity to see a grief counselor, I would urge you to do that. I didn't have that available to me when I was in the depths of my grief. And I, I wish that for other people. It can help. Even if you don't think it could, I would urge you to give it a shot if that's available to you. I would urge you to reach out to people. If you have people in your life that you trust, please do that. Find the things that make you feel alive and hold on to them, whether it's writing or dancing or whatever thing 
is your passion or, or the many things that are your passion. Try to hold on to those and make that be the meaning of your life. I mentioned meditation, how meditation has helped me cope with anxiety and depression because when you don't have a lot of money and when you don't have access to any kind of therapy or help because you don't have money because that's the way it is in the United States we don't have universal health care if you don't have money a doctor's not going to see you it's just that simple a therapist is not going to see you for free so there are not a lot of options for for people who don't have health insurance or can't afford it so I've had to find other resources and other ways to help me get through my depression and my anxiety. And meditation is something that's helped me. It's not a cure. It's not a substitute for real therapy and real help. But when you don't have a lot and you don't have many options, you make do with what you have. Um, but something I'd also like to say if any of you are grieving or struggling with grief is that whatever you feel is okay. That there's not a time limit on grief. It doesn't just suddenly go away one day. Maybe it does for you, but for other people, that doesn't always happen. Please don't think that you have to be on some kind of timetable. Well, a year later or two years later, I should be feeling this or I should be feeling that. Now, if you feel like things are really bad for you and you're really struggling, and again, you have the means or you have the access I would obviously urge you to see a counselor or see a therapist if it's getting really bad and you can't cope with it. That should be a choice for you if it's possible. But the mental health care system in this country is horrible. So many people are left out. So many people are excluded. And I'm one of them. And I'm a victim of it. I'm suffering because of it. And millions of people are suffering because of it. They have depression. They have anxiety. And they can't get help. What are they supposed to do? I've just tried to find things that, that help me cope. But if you can do that, you should. But also don't think that your grief should just end one day, that it magically disappears. Sometimes it's ongoing. Sometimes it's lifelong. There are no five stages. That's like a total myth. Grief is, grief is complicated at times. And whatever you feel is okay. If that means laugh, if that, if that means you're happy and you're laughing, that's okay. You don't need to feel guilty about that. If you're crying all day, well, that's valid too. There is no right or wrong way to grieve. But I would urge you not to push your grief away. I would urge you not to pretend like it's not there or to pretend like nothing happened and that you're fine. I don't think that's productive either. Um, I'm not a grief expert or a grief counselor. I'm just speaking from my own personal experiences. But it's okay to grieve. In, in Western culture, in the United States especially, there's this idea that there's a time limit on it and then you're fine. Or you shouldn't be emotional or you shouldn't be publicly um, crying about or you shouldn't be sad or you shouldn't show your emotions people don't know how to handle emotion and whatever you feel is okay and whatever you feel is valid if that's anger if that's sadness if that's resentment if that's whatever it's okay and and it's valid so and I would urge any of you who have a person in their life who's grieving to just be supportive and just be there for that person. 
don't impose time limits on them and please don't say things like that person's in a better place or it all happens for a reason um I, I would ask you not to inject religion in it unless you know that that person is religious because when my father died I live in the south it's very Christian it's very religious and that's what people said to me they said things like he's in a better place or it all happens for a reason or God doesn't give you more than you can't handle and none of that was helpful to me like I'm an atheist I don't believe in God I don't believe that stuff I don't believe in heaven and none of that helped me. I really don't want to be told that my dad had to die or that it had some kind of reason or that the pain I'm feeling is okay or something. Like you may not think it's a bad thing to say, but there is something very tone deaf and hurtful about it to act like somebody's death was meant to be like, I have a major problem with that. I would urge you not to say that to people. Nobody, nobody comforted me really. Like I had such a terrible experience after my father died. Like the way certain family members acted and things people did. It's really unbelievable and I still struggle with it. And please don't say that to people. Do not say that to people. It's very rude and hurtful just be there. What would have helped me is if somebody would have legitimately cared and said, I'm here for you. If And, and don't say it if you don't mean it. If you say, call me at 3 a.m., you better mean that that person can call you at 3 a.m. Legitimately reach out and be authentic about it and be genuine and sincere about it and say, whatever you need, I am here and then follow through with it. Don't say that and then they call you crying and you don't have time for them or they need a ride somewhere and you're you're too busy to give it to them. If you're going to reach out to someone, be real about it and say, I'm here for you. Whatever you feel is okay. I'm going to help you through this and I'm going to support you and be kind to you. That's what people need to do. And unfortunately, that doesn't really happen. At least it didn't happen for me. Um, I wish people had cared and I wish they had shown that they cared, but that didn't happen for me. And so it is what it is, but I want to use this platform, this little platform I have to try to encourage you to be better <laughs> than the people that I had in my life and to just, just say you're there. Just say, I care about you and I'm here for you and whatever you feel is okay. And I'm going to help you through this. That's all you can do. Don't try to impose meaning on it. Don't try to force people into something that they're not comfortable with. And uh, and as I said, if you're grieving, it's okay. It's okay to feel that pain. There's nothing wrong with you if you're sad or you're angry or you feel like you're a mess or you can't get it together. I'm 12 years down the road and... I'm still struggling and I do feel a lot of shame about that. I do feel like, oh, 12 years, I should be in a much better place about this, but I'm not. I'm not. And that's that's the truth and that's that's just the way it is and there's not much I can do about it. I just try to keep surviving. I try to keep getting through it and that's all any of us can do and be kind to yourself. Forgive yourself. It's okay to be fragile. 
It's okay to struggle. It's okay if you can't cope. You've gone through something very traumatic and very painful. And just do your best. Do your best to just get through it. I I don't know. I don't have some kind of life-altering advice or wisdom to share with you. It's just do the best that you can and try to be kind to yourself and forgive yourself for being human and for not being able to handle it if you can't and um that's all you can do but cinema is one of the things that's helped me it's given me a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose this podcast has done that engaging with cinema and talking about films is really important to me and it helps me and cinema I don't believe in healing I don't believe that I will ever heal I just don't believe in that. I don't even like to use the word healing. I just feel like there are certain wounds that do not ever heal and that cannot ever be repaired. And they're open and sometimes they're festering and they're very painful at times. And for me, my father's death is one of those open wounds and I don't think I can heal from it. But I do try to find moments of peace or moments of relief I try to remember that there is beauty in the world and the only thing I would use the word healing in relation to is cinema and possibly literature too because those are my twin passions that's when I'm reading something and I really connect to it like a Virginia Woolf book or when I'm watching a film like Krzysztof Kieślowski's the Double Life of Veronique, or the Decalogue, which I have an episode about. I have an episode about Veronique, too. When I'm engaging with the films that I really love and that really move me, I do feel a sense of, of healing. It's momentary. It's like while that film is showing, but I feel okay for a little bit when I'm watching that. And that's why cinema matters so much to me. And why these films just take on such a power within my life and and that's what I'm trying to talk about and explain and put into words through through my podcast and through my writing Um, it's not easy but it is something that I really feel is necessary to talk about how powerful these films can be and and how important they can be to our lives So now I want to talk about The Lives of Others, this film that I saw at that discount theater that I've been talking about. And I don't know if I saw it in 2006 or 2007 because the reason the theater was so cheap was because they got films months and months after they came out. They did not get new releases, so that's why it was only a dollar to get in. So I I most likely saw it in 2006, but I don't know for sure. And um, I have a very intense experience of seeing this film for the first time. And I think it's why it's become such an important film in my life. I remember being in the theater. I dragged my mom along. She does not like foreign language films. It's not really her thing. And we were like the only people in that theater except for maybe one other person or maybe a couple of other people. Um, And this film made such an impression on me at that time. I was probably 17 years old. And I didn't know 
anything about the historical setting of this film, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. So it, it was really an education for me. It was a lesson. It was, but it was a film that I think still has resonance today. And I think it still has something to say, not just about Germany in the 1980s, East Germany in particular, in particular, but the world we live in now where surveillance is very much a part of our lives. So I'm going to try to connect it to our modern lives a little bit, but I do want to share my personal thoughts and feelings about this film. And I don't know if I'll be objective in any possible way, but it's very interesting to revisit a film that you saw as a teenager. And when we are that age, I think when we're 16 and 17, things are very impressionable for us. They make an impact on us in a way that I don't think later on when we get into our 20s and we get older, I don't know if things can still have that same power. I just find that my childhood, my teen years in particular, are so powerful for me that the things that I remember, like I, I've read books and not even remembered like what happened in those books months later. And yet I will remember a book that I read when I was 13 or 14 and I'll have such an intense memory of it. And I know most of you can relate to that where you forget something that happened last week, but you can vividly remember something that happened when you were a teenager or or even younger possibly but I find that my childhood and my teen years are incredibly powerful for me and and overwhelming at times those memories and just a scent can bring them back just smelling something from that time in my life or or hearing a song or I'm I'm a profoundly nostalgic person and I think it's because of my father's death when he died I was 16 and so it's like that was the end of my youth that was the end of my innocence that was the end of everything and I think everything around that time even the before even the after is very intense for me the things that happened before his death but also some of the things that happened after his death they have such a power and such an intensity for me. It's really hard for me to even talk about it or explain it. But if you have not seen The Lives of Others, I would obviously encourage you to see it. I think it's a great film. It did win an Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. It. I'm going to give spoilers, so I do want you to know that. Um, but the backdrop of the lives of others is the division of Germany between East and West Germany. East Germany became known as the German Democratic Republic and it existed from 1949 until 1990. It was part of the Eastern Bloc and it was under the power of the Soviet Union and it was a very repressive government um, and it had a secret police force which was called the Stasi and the Stasi was very adept at turning everyday Germans into informants on one another and that's something that is in the film but people lived in a lot of fear um, because of this secret police and because and because of this repressive government so that is the backdrop it's East Germany it's the um the German Democratic Republic, the GDR. That's what it's called throughout the film. And 
that is obviously a profoundly complex history. And I'm sure if, if you're German listening to this podcast, you know all about it. People in the United States, I would not say that we are as educated about it. We certainly know about the Berlin Wall. I certainly know about it and have learned about it. But I don't know all the complexities of East Germany and the German Democratic um, Republic. So that's not what this episode is about. I, I can't give you some in-depth history lesson about it. I don't think you need to know everything about it to understand the lives of others and to enjoy the lives of others. Something significant about the film is its historical accuracy. That um, the director, and I didn't mention his name, Florian Hinkle von Donnersmark, he went to great um, efforts to make sure that this film was historically accurate. That things that you see in it are accurate. So the film, in a, in a gist, you know, I'm going to go into more depth, but if you're not totally familiar with it, it's about a playwright and his girlfriend and how they come under surveillance by a Stasi agent. But it's also about how gradually, over the course of the film, these people who are on opposite sides of the political divide, who are really enemies to each other, how... One of them, the Stasi agent, actually starts to change. He he obviously sees this playwright and these people as sort of enemies, as people who don't fit into his ideology and the government that he is working for and that ideology. And yet he starts to connect with them as he listens to their lives um, because their apartment is bugged. And so... That's what it's about in, you know, at its most basic is about what living in East Germany was like at that time, what a repressive government does to the people that have to live under that government, um, the pressures that it places on people. What would you do? How would you act? Would you become an informant? Would you work for the Stasi? How would you survive it? Of course, we can't know, but there are many people that had to live under this government, and it was very difficult for them, and people became targets of the Stasi, and you, those people can even go and read their records. Um, the records are open to people. You can go, and they can read um, the surveillance records of them. People were imprisoned. People were tortured. People were killed. You know, this is real. This was terrible what happened to a lot of people under the the, um, the German Democratic Republic. So this film is one of the first films to grapple with what happened in Germany, especially it's particularly particularly in the 1980s. And even some of the people in the film, the different actors, some of them were victims of the Stasi. So This is an important film about what a repressive government can do to its citizens, what people do when they're in that crucible, and and what happens to them, and do they turn against people, or do they resist, or you don't know what's going to happen. So it's such a powerful film about choices, and about the choices that people make, or the choices that they can't make, being trapped underneath this very powerful government and being watched a lot and um 
but it's also, I guess, about the possibility of change that maybe, maybe someone who seems so ideological, who seems so set in their thinking, could they change? Could their minds be transformed in some way through a connection to other people? And a big part of this film is really the humanization of all the characters, which is a bit controversial, that the Stasi agent in particular gets humanized. And I'm not sure myself how I feel about it, but I do want to explore it and and talk about it. So this film has a really exceptional cast. Um, Our main character is really Georg Dreiman, and he's played by Sebastian Koch, who is a very gorgeous man that I've loved for years and years. But when I saw The Lives of Others, I fell in love with Sebastian. I think he's one of the most gorgeous men I've ever laid eyes on. But he plays Georg Dreiman, this playwright, and his girlfriend is Krista Maria, played by Martina Gedek, and she is a very famous German actress. She's considered one of the greatest German actresses, really. Um, and they are a couple. She's an actress. He's a playwright. She is often in many of his plays, and um, a man is obsessed with Krista Maria, and that man is Bruno Hempf. He's Minister of Culture, and he is really obsessed with her, and he wants to find information about Georg, about Dryman. I'll, I'll probably say Dryman throughout the film. Um, he's obviously jealous of Dryman, and he wants an operation set up to spy on Dryman and Krista Maria. And so the Stasi agents, they go into the apartment, they bug it, they put those bugs everywhere. They put them in the bathroom, they put them in the living room, the bedroom. There's not an inch of that apartment that is not bugged. And um, so he wants them under surveillance. And so that is that is what happens. That is the impetus for why they come under um, under this surveillance. And the man who is chosen to listen in on these recordings and to spy on this couple is a man named uh, Visla, and he's played by Ulrich Muha. And Ulrich Muha is an exceptional actor. Like, what stays with me about the film is Muha. Like, that, when I left the theater after seeing this film, he was what stayed with me, that actor. Like, I was absolutely astonished by his performance and what he did in that role and I could not get over it and when I heard that he died it was really hard for me he actually died in 2007 and that was like heartbreaking for me when I heard that because he just came off on that like I can't explain it it's like, we talk a lot about directors when we talk about cinema. Oh, do you like Ingmar Bergman? Do you like Andre Tarkovsky? Do you like Agnes Varda? All kinds of different directors that we talk about. But sometimes I think when we get so obsessed with the auteur theory and and putting it all on the director, I think we forget maybe why we really 
go to see a film or or the things that really move us about a film and that is the actors that is the performances that they're creating and what they're conveying through their their faces and their bodies and I listened to the director's commentary of the lives of others so so I listened to Von Donner's Mark's audio commentary and he has this really great part of it where he talks about how much he loves actors and how he's really in awe of what actors do and for him personally he thinks that acting is like the greatest art that an actor doesn't have the actor doesn't have a pen the actor doesn't have paint the actor doesn't have all these other things they use their face and their bodies and their eyes and all they have is is themselves is their bodies and that is how they convey emotion and and all of this and i would tend to agree with von donner's mark that i think there is something incredibly powerful about acting and that often when i go to a film and what i connect to is the actor and yes the director is part of that the director gives them directions and things like that and the script is important but what an actor does is very special I think especially the great ones and Ulrich Muha was actually a really great theater actor I think he's known primarily for his theater acting and he himself was under Stasi surveillance there were Stasi agents put into his theater group and he didn't know which ones were Stasi and which ones weren't. And I think he himself went and read his own Stasi file after after um, that government was dissolved, obviously, and Germany was reunified. He went and read his own record. So he himself was a victim of the Stasi. And there are actors throughout the film who were victims of the Stasi or were tortured or were sent to, to prison and who went through really difficult things. And it was important, I think, to Von Donner's Mark to include those people. So, um, so this film is set in, in the German Democratic Republic in East Germany in 1984. And, um, Von Donner's Mark says that it didn't really have much to do with George Orwell. Cause I had wondered that myself, um, if it was connected to that, but he said that, in that particular year, Russia had a lot of power at that time, I guess. And that's why he chose 1984. Um, for me, this film is really about the collision of these three lives of Visla, Dryman, and Krista Maria. Um, it's about the three of them, how maybe in another time they could have been friends or they could have... Life could have been so different, but because of this particular time in East Germany in the 1980s, they are on such different ends of the spectrum where that that's not possible. That they are so shaped by the, the historical moment they are living in under this repressive government. And Wiesler is the Stasi agent, and he is spying on them. And... um they're so different he is incredibly cold and regimented he's very alone and then we have these two artists Krista Maria and Dryman who are very affectionate and passionate and romantic and sensitive 
and creative. You know, they're, they're so completely different from Wiesler. And I think that's what starts to seduce him as he's listening in onto their lives. That's the title of the film, The Lives of Others. That's what he's listening to is their lives. And through listening in on their, their lives and their discussions and their lovemaking and whatever, that starts to change him. But the real thing that starts to change him is music. Um, Dryman has a friend and... Another thing that I like about this film is the way that it shows the impact of the GDR and the Stasi on different people's lives. You know, Dryman's doing okay. Dryman is sort of in a, in some ways working with the government. I guess his plays sort of go along with the status quo. He's not trying to rock the boat in any way. Him and Krista Maria are not like resistance fighters or anything. They're just trying to survive. They're trying to, to go along with things. But they have friends who are not like that. They have friends that want to fight back. And um, Dryman has a friend named Yerska. And Yerska um, has been blacklisted. He's a theater director and he's been blacklisted. And that's really painful for him. And he can't get work and he can't do the thing that he's passionate about because he really refuses to go along with the government. And um, Yerska gives... Dryman this music and it's called Sonata for a Good Man and later on Yerska will commit suicide and Dryman plays that piece of music and it's um, composed the the person that composed the music for the film was uh, Gabriel Yared and he's like this really famous film composer and he's really amazing I love his work and he composed this sonata for a good man. And, and Dryman plays it in his grief, really, over losing Gerska and knowing that it is the GDR that destroyed him. And he plays that sonata on the piano and Wiesler can hear it through the, his headphones. And it's this piece of music that is so moving and so beautiful that it it changes Wiesler in some way. And von Donnersmark talks about how that's really the seed of the film is that he he was inspired by the image of a man listening to music and being so moved by this music that he would change his ideology that it would completely transform him he was inspired by a story about Lenin and things like that I don't want to go into the whole story it's out there if you want to like I'm sure you can read about it somewhere um but the seed of the film and the way he wrote the script and everything was this idea of a piece of music changing someone. And so a really big part of this film, besides just the surveillance aspect of it, which is really a powerful part of it, is this idea that art uh, it can change people. That art is a force that can transform. And that there is through art, the possibility of connection, of breaking through to another person like Wiesler, who seems impenetrable. Because um, Wiesler is just, he's unreal at times. He actually, he he does interrogations of people. At the beginning of the film, we see him teaching a class on interrogation. This is someone who is profoundly involved in the, ide- in the ideology of the GDR. Um 
he believes in this government. He's working for this government. Um, of everyone who seems unchangeable, it would be Wiesler. Like, he does not come off that way. Like, he could be changed or he could be transformed. And so the film, I think, is trying to argue that maybe somebody like him could be changed. And the film, I think, tries to show Wiesler in a more human way. And that's been controversial. Should we see a Stasi agent in a humanized way? It's, I think it's a question that comes up with Holocaust films. When, when we see Nazi officers depicted or the SS depicted or the guards at the concentration camps and the death camps, should they be humanized? Should they be shown that way when they committed unspeakable acts of horror, when they committed these atrocities? And that's a complicated question, but I will argue that the people who commit these acts are people and they are human beings. And I don't necessarily know if it's wrong to show them as human beings. Now, the, the extent to which you're going to show them as human, I don't know. There, there are degrees of it, right? I mean, you can show a Nazi officer with his family and try to get a sense that this is a family man, that this is an actual person, but you can't erase the violence that they commit. You may not be able to explain that violence, but you obviously can't erase it. And so when we see these humanized portraits, I guess, we need to also counter them a little bit. And I think it's about showing the complexity that yes, this person is human, and they can have moments of humanity, I guess you could say. But that doesn't necessarily outweigh or erase the horrific violence that they've done. You know, Wiesler is a character who has destroyed lives. He has interrogated people. He has put people in prison. He has done so much. He isn't automatically redeemed just because he helps Dryman and Krista Maria. And now that I'm talking about it, I wonder if the film tries to do that, that it shows him in a redeeming light, and now I'm not so sure how I feel about that. I, the, this just hit me as I was talking about it. That, I mean, the film shows some of his more odious and violent acts, the interrogations, but it seems to focus much more on his transformation and him changing. And I would question how believable that is. I, like watching the film 12 years later... When I was 17 and I saw it, maybe I did believe that. Maybe I did believe that, oh, somebody could read a book or somebody could listen to a piece of music and that could change them and transform them and make them better people. But a lot's happened in the 12 years since then. Donald Trump has been elected. Things have changed politically. I don't know if I believe that anymore. I don't know. And I wonder if the film is a bit naive in believing that, in in positing that this is possible, that a man would hear Sonata for a good man, and that he would become a good man, that he would become a decent man. And the film, I don't know if the film tries to redeem him, but it does sort of, sort of shows Wiesler as like a sad character, that, oh, he's sad. Look at him in his empty apartment, eating ketchup on rice, and sitting and watching TV by himself, and look at him hiring a prostitute because he has no one in his life who loves him. Oh, look at him at the end. He gets demoted, and he's steaming open letters, and he's delivering the mail, and 
there is something about the representation of him that is very sad. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I do wonder if it almost tries to erase some of the damage and the violence that he did as a Stasi agent. That Does it go too far? That's what I think you as a viewer would have to decide. I'm just giving my opinion. Does it go too far in humanizing him? I don't know. That's a hard question, and I'm grappling with it. It's not that I don't want to see these people as human, but sometimes I worry that in trying to humanize killers or or bad people, that we really kind of forget about the violence that they've done and their victims. And um, Wiesler had a lot of victims, and yes, he helped Dryman, but he hurt a lot of people when he was a Stasi agent, right? So I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of conflicted about it, but I do think that in the film there is this idea that somebody can be changed by music, that, um, that art can have a very powerful impact on a person. And I want to believe that as somebody, as somebody who loves cinema and loves literature. I want to believe that language and films and art can change the world, that it can make people more empathetic and more humane. And I think at times it can. I think it depends. But I don't think we can put all of our hope into it, that there are people who love classical music and still do horrible things. There are people that like art house cinema and do horrible things and treat people badly. Just because you like certain kinds of art doesn't make you a better person or a good person. Um, you know, the Nazis would be a perfect example that these are people who loved literature and loved classical music and then they went and committed terrible atrocities and genocide. So art may not be enough. And it's hard for me to admit that as someone who believes in the power of art and the importance of art. But um, at 17, I believed that. But at 28, I don't know if I still do. I don't know if it rings true for me that Visa would listen to this, this song and that he would change. But it is a powerful moment in the film. And Ulrich Muha obviously gives an amazing performance. And that's the thing about Muha. It's like, damn, it's almost like he makes Wiesler too human. It, like his acting is so brilliant that this does feel like a real character. This feels like a real person. And he does give him so much humanity and sympathy. And maybe I'm uncomfortable with that. And I didn't realize I was uncomfortable with it until now. That I don't know how I feel about sympathizing with someone who has destroyed so many lives. And I wonder if the film... I don't know if it's good that the film puts us in that position. I don't know. I, I'm conflicted about it. I, I don't know. I don't, what does it do to humanize these people? Like, where does it get us? I mean, I know we have to see them as human. We have to see their full complexity. But I think it, I think it should make us feel unsettled a bit I think it should maybe that's the point maybe we should be uncomfortable with with looking at a Stasi agent and, and seeing and and sympathizing with him or feeling pity or feeling bad for him maybe that is it's right to feel discomfort about that um but that's something I'm grappling with now that I'm talking about the film and exploring it. Sometimes this happens where I take my notes, I have my ideas, but then as I'm talking, other things start to percolate and start to surface. And 
Muha just gives such a powerful performance. It's one of the greatest I've probably ever seen. And and um, he makes that character very real and makes him very sympathetic uh, at times. And I just, I don't know how I feel about that. And I just don't know if I believe that a piece of music could change a person like that. Now I'd really like to talk about Krista Maria and this character. Um, she's played by Martina Gedek, who, as I said before, was is a famous German actress, especially in Germany, and she's considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, actress of her generation. And um, I have so much sympathy for Krista Maria. I think this film, for me, shows how different people respond to being... Um, in a repressive situation that some people resist. Some people are like um, Dryman's friend, Paul. Um, Dryman has a birthday party and his different friends are there. And that's also, I think, one of the last times he sees Yerska. And later Yerska commits suicide, as I said. And I did want to correct myself. Yerska is not the one that gave Dryman the music um, for Sonata for a Good Man. I misspoke with that. It was actually Krista Maria that gave Dryman that, that sheet music. So I did want to correct myself on that. But, um, Dryman has a friend, he's named Paul, and he's much more resistant to the regime and to the government. And he's upset with Dryman that Dryman is not more, um, that, that Dryman sort of goes along and he, he doesn't really do anything. He doesn't stand up against them. And he, he's just much more vocal about it and, and fierce about it. So we have people like Paul who were fiercely against um, this repressive government. And then we have somebody like Yerska who is broken down by it, who was destroyed by it and just has everything taken from him that he loves. He can't work. He's blacklisted. So he ends up committing suicide. We have pe people like Dryman who sort of go along with it. I wouldn't say Dryman is necessarily colluding with the government or anything like that, but he's not writing anything that would be suspicious or upsetting or anything like that. And then we have Krista Maria who is really broken down by living in the GDR. And she takes pills. She has pills that she takes. I would think maybe there's some kind of, maybe something similar to Xanax or something to help her nerves, to help her just get through. Um, she loves acting. That is obviously the one thing that I think is keeping her going, along with being with Dryman, that the two of them their love for each other helps them survive the GDR and helps them get through all of that. And but she's a really complicated character, I think. And she's someone who is dealing with a lot and she's not, <laughs> she's just not able to deal with all of it. And on top of that, she has this minister of culture, Bruno Hempf, who is obsessed with her and he is the one that starts the surveillance on the apartment and he 
starts this sexual relationship with her and he picks her up in his car and there is a particularly brutal scene in the car where um, he is touching her and he obviously rapes her. I would call it rape. Um, This is a woman who is not consenting to being with this man. She's in the back of his car. He's got his hands all over her. He's on top of her. He has immense power over her life and her career, whether she'll be able to act or whatever she'll be able to do. So um, he is very powerful and she has no power at all. There's nothing she can do in this thing, you know, in this situation. And so I would say that he is really raping her and that he is exploiting her and abusing her. And she is really just an object, something for him to exploit and possess and violate. And this shows, I think, what I don't know the statistics. I don't know if this was widespread for women in the GDR. But her particular story shows what I would think a good deal of women perhaps went through, where they were not just having to deal with this very repressive environment but they were also having to deal with sexual violence which is often the case for women you know drymen and all of them they don't have to worry about their bodies being violated but Krista Maria did and Martina in that scene in the car it's one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever watched he the whole time when he's touching her and he's trying to kiss her and it's like her body just goes limp. I mean, I can see why she's considered a really great actress, although I think this is the only film that I've seen her in. Her body, the way she plays Krista Maria is, it's very visceral. And in that scene in particular, she just looks numb. She looks like she is just trying to survive this moment. It's like she's there, um, but she's not there. And there's this scene where afterwards she gets out of the car and she's walking back to the apartment that she shares with Dryman. And in her walk, just the way she walks across the road and it's dark, you can't really even like see her face. But the way that she adjusts her clothes, trying to cover herself and, you know, tuck her shirt in and and just get herself presentable so that she can see Dryman. And the way she walks across the street, it says everything of what's just happened to her. It screams of the violation that she has just endured. And the acting in this film is like on another level. I don't think it would be the same film without Muha playing Wiesler. And and it would not be the same without Martina as Krista Maria because they both just bring something out about these characters and they make them feel so real and, and raw. and But all the actors are great. I, I think Sebastian Coe is really amazing. And he was actually a TV actor. And this was his first big starring role in a film. That's what Von Donnersmark said in the audio commentary. Um, Sebastian was primarily known as like a big TV star. So um, all of them do an exceptional job but there are just certain scenes of the film whether it's Muha listening to the music and that one tear coming down his his face or Krista Maria after being raped in in the car and and just walking across the street it's like 
what these actors bring out is is just extraordinary and I think that's part of the power of the film and why it stays with you are those performances and and what they make you feel and um and Dryman sees her walking across the street because Wiesler has set it up so that Dryman sees it and he knows what's happening with Bruno Hempf and, and what's going on. And so that's like an added shame for her that this is something she was probably trying to keep secret. And instead, now he knows. And now she has to deal with him knowing. And um, this is just one of many ways that Wiesler insinuated himself into their lives and manipulated and interfered in it and really disrupted it in so many ways. But um, but Krista Maria is, she's like a tragic character in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, Dryman finds out what she's doing and he asks her not to go out, not to meet with him. And um, she, she leaves and she actually meets Wiesler at a bar. And those of you who have seen the film remember this scene and it's this very powerful scene of the two of them for the first time him interacting with one of these people that he's been spying on for all this time and he tells her she's a great actress that she's a great artist and um it's like he's trying to connect to her he's trying to communicate something with her and it's really one of the few scenes of the film that shows Wiesler talking to someone where he's not interrogating them he's not trying to hurt them he's you get the sense that perhaps he is pouring his heart out in some way and sharing (coughs) and sharing what he really thinks of her and she ends up going back home to Dryman and she refuses to see him anymore but of course that comes at a price and that's the thing about this film is that it really feels like the person who suffers the most in the whole film is Krista Maria that she becomes the one that takes on everything because Dryman isn't interrogated um he doesn't go through what Krista Maria goes through um she really becomes the target of all of the violence you know the sexual violence that she has to go through the violence of when Hempf gets really mad and has her arrested for the pills that she's buying. He has her arrested at the doctor where she gets her pills and then she's taken in and interrogated. And of course, this sets off a series of very tragic events where um, she reveals things about what Dryman is doing. I'll talk about that in a minute. So she is the one that really takes all the suffering and the pain, which watching it now sort of bothered me it felt like it felt like this woman was being tortured and and really so much suffering was being inflicted on her and that kind of upset me watching it now I was like that kind of pisses me off (laughs) that she's treated that way that all these men are there and none of them really go through any of that but she does and it was almost like the excessive battering of her and I'm uncomfortable with that. I will say that, that when I was younger, 
hell, even when I watched it last year, it didn't, it didn't occur to me the way it does now. And, um, yeah, it made me uncomfortable for sure. But, um, after Yerska's death, Dryman writes an essay where he talks about how the GDR does not keep statistics of people who commit suicide because they don't want people to know how bad it is in the GDR and that all these people are killing themselves. And that article, that essay, gets smuggled over to West Germany and it gets um, it gets published and, and disseminated and he he types the essay on a special typewriter that's also smuggled in and it has red ink in it and I didn't know this but all the typewriters in the GDR were cataloged and registered and so if they found something that was written with a particular typewriter, they could trace it back to this person's typewriter. So he had to have a special one where he could type up his essay about the suicide, suicide statistics in the GDR. And so um, that sets off a lot of events as well, because they want to know who, who wrote this essay, how did it get to West Germany, and of course this whole time Wiesler is protecting them. He knows full well that Dryman has written the essay, but he is protecting them because he has, I would almost say he's fallen in love with them in a way. And I think what happens for him when it comes to Dryman and Krista Maria, I almost feel like he lives through them vicariously, that he's like this audio voyeur and he's almost living through them in a way like there's such a huge contrast between his life and theirs. Because he's alone. He has nobody. He hires a prostitute. He just, he has a very empty life. His whole life is dedicated to being a Stasi agent. And I think this assignment of spying on them has perhaps shown him how empty that ideology is. How empty that political belief is. And he's sort of living vicariously through them and he's protecting them, but it gets to a point where he's really protecting himself too. Because if it comes out that Dryman has written the essay, well, then the higher ups are going to go to Wiesler and they're going to say, why didn't you catch this when you were spying on them? So I wouldn't say it's all altruism. You know, it's not all him trying to protect them. I think he's trying to protect himself too at times. Because if it comes out that Dryman wrote that essay and he didn't catch it, then he'll get in trouble. But Krista Maria inadvertently learns about it. She sees Dryman putting the typewriter back in its secret hiding place. Dryman did not want her, well, his friends did not want Krista Maria to know what was happening because of her fragility, because she was so fragile. Um, and they knew that if she was interrogated, she would give it up. And unfortunately, that's what ends up happening, is that Hemp gets upset with her for breaking off the relationship. He has her arrested for the pills, but really her arrest is to get information about Dryman and about all that stuff. And she ends up breaking. She And Wiesler is the one who interrogates her. So he's in there and, and she realizes that it's him, that here is this man that she spoke to earlier 
in that scene at the bar, the man who was building her up, who were saying what a great artist she was. And then now here he is interrogating her. And he tells her, you know, if you want to act again, if you want to keep, you know, uh, being an actress, you have to tell us. And she does eventually break and she tells them where the typewriter is, but she can't live with herself for doing it. And this is like a fascinating part of the film because again, it's about what would you, it's not asking what would you do, but it makes you think about what do people do when they're put under that kind of pressure, when they're living under a repressive government. And yeah, some people can be like Paul and and try to fight the power and, and resist, but where does it really get you? what does it really accomplish? Um, is resistance futile? You know, it's like, I I don't, I'm not saying it's right. The people who became Stasi informants, I'm not saying it's right. The people who colluded with the government or colluded with the Stasi. But if I was under the same circumstances and I was scared for my family and I didn't know what I was going to do and and they threatened to hurt me or to put me in prison. I may well break. I may well inform on somebody. I may well do that. And so I guess I'm not quite as uh, severe about it in judging people who did because you just don't know what you would do. And it's easy to say, oh, I do this. Oh, I would do that. I would never give in under interrogation or torture. Um, it's really easy to say that, but you don't know it for sure. And this also connects a bit to my previous episode, last week's episode about Pan's Labyrinth. That film took place in 1944 in Spain after the end of their civil war, their very violent and bloody civil war when the fascists and Franco were in power. And that was a very, from what I know, a very violent regime and a fascist regime. And people were living under the fear and the terror, the People were living under the fear and terror of this government. And there were resistance fighters that were fighting against it, but this was still the state that was in power. And they had the full, um, you know, the full resources of a state with armies and, and guns and all kinds of violence. And it's the same thing with the GDR in the 1980s. You're up against an entire state apparatus that is against you that has so much more power than you, that can torture you, that can take away your livelihood, that can throw you in prison and make sure you're never seen again. I don't, and I will say this is a strength of the film, is that it doesn't judge those characters. I don't think we're supposed to judge Krista Marie and say, oh my God, how terrible she is. She was in a difficult position and she did what she had to do to try to get out of it. And I have a lot of sympathy for Krista Maria. And in the end, all of them were cogs in the machine of the GDR. All of them. Even Wiesler, even Hempf, for God's sakes. All of them were cogs. They were cogs in that bureaucracy. They were cogs in that government run by the most petty, selfish, 
stupid people. And Dryman has the best line at the end of the film. You know, after so much has happened, you know, um, you know, Krista Maria can't live with herself. She goes home. They release her. They go. The Stasi agents go into the apartment. It's a very powerful scene. They open the safe space, the, the hiding place for the typewriter. And Dryman sees it. And he knows that nobody else could know that hiding place except Krista. Krista Maria. And the way he looks at her. You know, the the betrayal that is there. And she's... <laughs> She can't deal with it. She runs from it and she runs out into the street and she gets hit by a car and she dies. Is it suicide? Is it an accident? Von Donnersmark brings that up in his audio commentary. Could it be she just wasn't looking too well when she went into the street? Or could it be she purposely put her body in front of that truck? I don't know. But either way, it's more like murder than suicide. It is the GDR that killed her. It is this, the Stasi, it is this government apparatus that put her in the position where she had to betray the man she loved more than anything because she could not survive any other way. It forced people into these positions. And yes, do you like to think that you'd be the one that's brave and heroic and stands up to the state, absolutely you like to think that you'd be that person. That you'd be Sophie Scholl in the White Rose, right? That doesn't mean you would be. And the vast majority of people were not. It was a scary time, I'm sure. Just like World War II was a scary time. This is what... This is the reality. That people are not always very brave and heroic at those moments. They're just trying to survive and save themselves. But at the end of the film, after that, after Krista Maria has died, after the Berlin Wall has fallen and a few years have passed, Dryman meets Hempf at, um, at a showing of one of Dryman's new plays. And he's talking to him in the lobby. I'm trying to find the quote. To think that people like you once ruled a country. That is like the best line in the entire film, I think. And it's something that came back to me as I was re-watching it. It, it had sort of um, a special resonance for me. Um, so what resonated with me about that line and about this film when it comes to the representation of the bureaucrats and the people who were part of the government and part of the Stasi, is that it brought up a lot of parallels with the election of Trump for me. And what struck me as I was watching it is just how stupid the people were who were in power and how the people in power always do seem to be stupid. They just are petty and 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 manipulative and idiotic but the but now with the election of trump and and what we're going through here where it's constant lies um it's just so much more explicit the stupidity the greed the lies it's all out there it's all out in the open none of it's hidden the people who have power and who have control over our lives are often so petty and small just like Kemp, just like even wiesler these are people who 
there's nothing smart or special or interesting or extraordinary about them. They're just sad, pathetic, petty people who want power. They just crave power and they'll get it any way that they can and they'll do whatever they want to people. Um, and Krista Maria is a victim of that. Yerska is a victim of that. All the people in the GDR were a victim of that. But I also feel like now in 2018, we are the victim of that here in the United States with the people who are in power in our country and not just on the federal level, but people who are in power on the state and the local level, the people who get elected, the people that the, the, the masses keep voting for. And it never seems to change. I mean, there's a few stories here and there about really great people winning and doing good things, but the vast majority, it is these stupid, petty people. And they are always, they always seem to be in power. And it's incredibly terrible. And obviously, the theme of surveillance is very resonant now in our post Edward Snowden world, right? And things that came out about the NSA and how they were spying on people and hell, I'm sure it's still going on. I'm sure it's still happening. When you think about, um, I mean, I know it's not the same thing, but the surveillance happening really through our, through our digital stuff, through social media, through our phones and our laptops, through Facebook and, and all these things. Surveillance is really part of our everyday lives that we always we don't really believe we have privacy anymore, at least not when we're on our phones or on our computers. The whole concept of privacy is changing. And um, we, I really think this film is a warning. It's a warning about what happens when you give unfettered power to a government and let them invade the lives of people. And spy on them and bug them and put them under surveillance without any kind of accountability, without any kind of oversight. Um, and that has really become more of an issue in the last few years. Um, and yet it's still happening. Like nothing's really changing. And so this film, I think, will always be relevant for that reason. As we grapple with these new technologies, when we look at how politics and governments are changing and how they are becoming more extreme. They are more and more being run by people who are not really smart, who are not capable of doing it, that they're just people who want power and they don't care how they get it. Because that's how I see Trump. I just I see him almost as like a hemp character of someone who's just hungry for power. And that's all he wants. And he just treats people however. It doesn't matter. He just wants power. And people are just there for him to exploit and manipulate and do whatever he wants to. I really, I see Trump and hemp almost as like the same in a lot of ways. Like, really terrible, terrible people, um, hungry for power. And, um, so there's so much to this film, like watching it 12 years later, some of it still is very powerful. Like the themes of surveillance, the themes of how people react when they're under a very repressive government. Do you resist? Do you fall apart? Do you just try to survive and numb yourself? What do people do? And you're going to get 
numerous and and varied reactions to that um and can art change people that's a big question i think we're living in a world where i don't know <laughs> like i i don't know it's the world has changed so much in 12 years but in this film art does have a great deal of power when Wiesler hears Sonata for a Good Man. And of course it ends with Dryman finding out about Wiesler, finding out that this man protected him, that he was spying on him, but he was not telling the authorities that he wrote the essay um, and stuff like that. And Dryman writes a book called Sonata for a Good Man and he, um, he dedicates it to Wiesler. And, um, so it's like full circle in a lot of ways. It all comes full circle in that way. So what does it mean to be a good person when you're in circumstances that don't really allow you to be good, that only, that only create, um, mistrust and betrayal and, People are just trying to survive and look out for themselves. How do you survive that kind of environment? It's it's scary. Um, I think that a thing, a, something like the GDR in East Germany could absolutely happen again. That maybe it is happening in other parts of the world. But it, I mean, especially with the unfettered power of like state surveillance that's happening here, especially in the United States with the NSA and stuff like that. Um, it could absolutely happen again, I think. I, I really do think it's a real danger that a, something like the GDR could happen again, where you have that kind of surveillance apparatus. You have um, people informing against each other, and that's always possible, I think. And um, we have to be aware of the dangers of surveillance, I think. But. I don't know. I think those warnings are really going unheeded in our society, unfortunately. But um, this film, I think it really holds up because of that, because of all the stuff that's going on in the film. And that's why I think it made such an impact on me, you know, sitting in the theater, watching it. And um, did I mention, oh, I didn't mention that, did I mention that Weisler, that uh, Weisler, um, he he took the typewriter out of the secret hiding place. I didn't mention that. I'm sorry. And um, so when the Stasi go to open that hiding place, the typewriter's not there. So Dryman is never prosecuted with anything because there's no evidence against him. Because before the Stasi got there, Weisler um, got there. He got there first and, and he took the the typewriter out but Krista Maria didn't know that you know she they just see the hiding place being opened and then that's when she runs out and she gets hit by the car and so um again only Krista Maria suffers like Dryman's never prosecuted nothing ever happens to him but then Krista Maria's dead like I feel like all all the suffering and stuff was put on her as a female character. And looking back on that, that really bothers me. Um, 
I wish she had not been sort of the sacrifice. She was almost like the sacrificial lamb and all of her pain seems to be almost metaphorical or symbolic in some way. And I think that sort of bothers me to add and heap up all that tragedy and suffering and pain onto the one female character. While the men, you know, they're doing just fine. Dryman goes on, hemp's fine, hemp's out. I don't think he was ever prosecuted. Um, Visla is suffering a bit. He's like a mail carrier and he gets demoted um, after he takes the typewriter. And um, he's steaming letters open when the Berlin Wall falls. So um, he definitely got demoted for what he did in, in protecting Dryman. And of course, his act is, I guess, it's a moment of self-sacrifice. It's this moment at which you realize that that uh, Visla has really changed, that he's willing to protect these people that he doesn't even know. And um, it's a powerful moment, like it really is. And I remember when I saw the film in the theater, it's so quick when Visla um, is leaving with the typewriter that you don't even see it. Like you barely see it. And it wasn't until I got the DVD of the film later on and that I saw that I could like slow it down or I could like, I think I remember freeze framing it. And um, I saw the typewriter. And, and, and so now I fully understood the film because when I saw it the first time at the theater, I don't think I understood what had happened because I didn't see Visla with the typewriter because it was so quick. Um, but he does do that, that act of, of sacrifice. He sacrifices his career. Um, he puts all of that on the line to protect Dryman and Krista Maria. Of course, it doesn't save Krista Maria and she's so full of shame for what she's done. And I guess she knows that it can never be the same between her and Dryman um, that she's really heartbroken by it and, and runs out and does that. But I hated that she is the only one that dies. You know, of course the woman is killed, right? Of course the woman dies. Um, yeah, I didn't like that aspect and it really bothers me now. And I still grapple with the, with the way Visla is represented of how he is such a big part of the film and his his life is such a big part of it and i wonder if the humanization and making him so sympathetic if that almost you know overlooks or um sort of minimizes the real damage that he did as a stasi agent so those are just some of the things that i think i'm left with personally to think about after doing this review and thinking uh, and talking about the film, those are just a few things that um, stick with me, I think. But I'm glad I talked about this film. And it was just really important to me after my father died and going to that theater. And it was one of those films that it just stayed with me. And it's it's been, it's haunted me for 12 years, that film. I've watched it multiple times. I bought the DVD. It's just one of those films that I really like and I, I don't, I'm not going to say it's a perfect film you know I have issues with the way Krista Maria is treated in the film I have issues I think with the representation of Wiesler and 
sometimes in a way it almost ends too perfectly that everything is wrapped up in a bow at the end right you know that Dryman writes the book and dedicates it to Wiesler and um there's just like yeah it feels too perfect at times right um but it is a beautifully written film I think and I guess what um what I loved so much about it when I was younger was the way that it came together so perfectly that there was like a poetry about it, such a a poetic aspect of the film of how A led to B and B led to C. And it just seemed like perfectly paced and perfectly plotted. And the colors of the film are very haunting as well, because you won't see another film with that kind of color palette. For me personally, he used beiges and greens and browns and it has this whole color palette to it that is very evocative I think and that he was trying to capture some of sort of the bleakness of the GDR of living under that it reminded me a bit of some of Krzysztof Kieślowski's films about Poland in I think the 70s and 80s like maybe camera buff but also Decalogue and those those films in Decalogue have a very muted color palette. It's it's like grays and, and that sort of thing. And there's like a bleakness about these characters' lives. Um, and that comes through in the color palette. And something similar, I think, is happening with the lives of others. And those there's just something about those colors. It, it transports you into the world of the film. And it just makes the film stand out in some way. And it just sticks in your mind this world that von Donnersmark created and these characters that he created and all of it is so compelling and just makes you think about so many things whether it's surveillance or what it means to resist a repressive government or um the power of art to possibly change and transform people or um thinking about petty the very petty men and and terrible men who always end up in power somehow those men will always find a way to be powerful and to control other people's lives it's depressing to even think about so there's so much to this film and i'm glad i talked about it and i will stop here um thanks so much for listening until next time keep watching great films bye for now